Welcome to the A Fire podcast. Now streaming on Apple, Google, Spotify, and more. Each episode features real and honest conversations with thought leaders from around the world at all levels of the commercial real estate and investing business, examining the ideas and questions fundamental to the future of our industry. Where are we now? What happens next? What should we do about it? How do we become better investors, leaders, and global citizens? For more, here's your host and the CEO of AFIRE, Gunnar Branson. Richard Florida Interview, Part 2, A Reckoning Point. This is a continuation of an interview with Richard Florida, author, professor, and thought leader on our fast-changing cities in this time of crisis. Part of what I find fascinating when I watch uh, the kind of the first movers or the more successful first movers in these kinds of environments is that they're observing or following what people are doing already. So as opposed to saying, what's the perfect ecosystem? They're saying, oh, wait a minute, all these knowledge workers, this creative class group, they're taking this imperfect space and they're adjusting it or they're, they're, they're wrestling with what doesn't work inside that system. All I have to do is remove those barriers and I have a viable investable uh, thesis. Not necessarily saying, how do I come up with you know, the font of Zeus, I come up with exactly what everything should be. Instead, it's just observing what it is that people are actually doing. These these creative class people uh, that have been around for 40 years or so as they continue to change the environment around them. So two points on that. You know, Jane Jacobs was a real mentor to me and she was just a brilliant, she's a brilliant intuitive. This idea that she said new ideas require old buildings. But why did she say new ideas require old buildings? She said new ideas can sometimes occur in new buildings, but they more often occur in old buildings because they're places that don't have those barriers. They're typically, in her day, cheap, affordable space with open floor plates that people could reconfigure. And so her point was exactly this from a real estate point of view, that you needed to be able to adjust space based on human needs rather than to program space and plug people into it. And for me, you know, my my insight into this was to observing two groups. I was observing how myself and other people who are writers or professors or intellectuals work, but also artists and musicians. And, and the reason is not because artists and musicians emulate tech work. It's because they do a similar kind of work. They do making work. They do thinking work. So when you look at how artists use space or how musicians use space, and then I began to see, you know, it's so interesting to watch. The same spaces in lower Manhattan, because it's a city I know best, that the artists were in and that they took over when they were abandoned warehouses and abandoned industrial spaces and bootstrapped, often illegally. These were the same spaces that Google and Facebook and the tech incubators were moving into. And, and so I began to see, oh, it's not like artists and musicians and techies are the same people, but they work in a very similar kind of way. Their mind is the means of production. So if you look at that and then you look at who's really taking up urban real estate now, these tech companies. And, and why is that? Because they need to recruit young people. Uh, it, they, they, they depend on young people and they need to get them in the office so that they can communicate and talk to one another. And they can't just stay at home all day. They need a different working environment. And that working environment I'm making, I wish you could see my face, folks. 
it's more like an artist and musician. It's not exactly like an artist or musician. Then it is like the office worker of my father's day. You know, so, so they're in adapting these environments to the rhythms and patterns of a new kind of knowledge work. Agreed. Actually, you, you bring up, uh, you know, the, the great uh, Madame Jacobs uh, numerous times. And uh, I think a lot of folks, myself included, uh, have been inspired by her, although didn't weren't mentored by her, but inspired by her writing. Um, and I've been struck and I'd love your thoughts on this, that, you know, for the last 10, 20 years, every new development has touted their Jacobs bonafides, you know, that that, that you know, their walkability and their village like and, you know, they find all these different things. And yet uh, they really don't look like something that she would have approved of. Um, where do you think people get her thinking wrong and why? Well, you know, I think the change is still ongoing. And, you know, hopefully I can be part of this change. And talking to folks like you and your community, I think it's still the building level focus that that for a long time our industry has been building level. And I think now for the first time, you're really seeing now you've always seen boutique players and lead players thinking about this. This has gone on for a long time. Right. But now you're seeing an industry-wide, not industry-wide, you're seeing a large number of players saying we have to do things differently um, because people won't come back. We'll have vacancy and, and begin to think about how do we make our buildings better? But I think this, this light bulb has gone off now. It's not the building. It's the neighborhood or the ecosystem. I just think there's a giant light bulb that's going off that people are beginning to say, no, 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 no. It's the neighborhood. It's the ecosystem. It's the district. And, and I think that light bulb is just going off now. And what's going to be interesting in this is we have this incredible experiment coming over the next two or three years as we emerge from this pandemic, as people want to get back to seeing their friends and colleagues. We have this enormous, I think it's one of the greatest opportunities for rethinking real estate, commercial, residential, all industrial in powerful new ways because, you know, 20 to 30 percent of our workforce is going to have to be enticed back to work. I think the downside of all of this, you know, is that life will never be better for the advantaged fifth or third of the workforce. But for the rest of the workforce, you know, I mean, if you look at COVID-19, if you look at just how it's hit on less advantaged people, on service workers, on racial and ethnic minorities, those groups have been devastated while, you know, highly advantaged, higher income knowledge workers have been spared a lot of the trauma, you know. So so I think the other thing is that it exposes in our society some deep divisions. And I think those are also going to be something that for better or worse, and I'm not, you know, I don't want to make this a political editorial, for better or worse, the real estate community and the real estate investment community is going to be called upon to address. And a lot of where it seems to happen, and, and I agree with you, gosh, I mean, it seems like the last year has been as much around those issues as it has been around the, the pandemic itself, um, how it is around affordability um, and these wonderful cities, these places where wonderful things happen, great opportunity for life and work and everything else for the creative class. And yet it seems to be that small fraction of the population that can actually be a part of this marvelous urban adventure. How should we be addressing affordability or what are some think what's some thinking around how to make our cities more accessible uh, to the entire population? So I think in the in the absence over the past certainly four years, although things have changed a little bit with the change in Washington, 
of national policy to address affordability or housing or disadvantage. That what happens in a vacuum like that, when people think they can't turn to the government to help them, they turn on who they think are advantaged groups. So, you know, I watched the Amazon Q2 thing very closely and I urged Amazon and mayors, don't go after these incentives. In fact, the location search that Amazon did was spectacularly good, best one I've ever seen. Don't go after the incentives because it's not a decent thing to do. And it's going to cause a political backlash. And of course it did. Amazon ultimately pulled out of its New York City location because the backlash was so severe. Um, you know, and I've seen this time and time again now with big tech companies. Real estate folks tend to think, oh, well, that's happened to big tech. It's not happening to us. But it is happening to the real estate community. I wrote a whole piece for City Lab on this, how how both the real estate and big tech communities are kind of in the bullseye on this one and that it requires a new way of operating. So, yes, I think that the real estate community has to be smart and forward looking in the investment community and be on top of issues of inclusivity, of sustainability, of building healthier and more resilient communities, of devoting some portion of developments to more affordability, of working with cities and communities. I talk about in that piece the need for the real estate community to work with anchor institutions, big universities, big hospitals that take up large urban footprints, to work with them to create more affordable housing, not just for professors and doctors, but for all the service personnel who are employed in those, you know, so-called workforce housing. So, yeah, I think and I think now we're finally at a time where governments are figuring out we can't do this all on our own. We actually need these public-private partnerships. And for everyone listening in, where I see this working best, because I do a lot of work out in cities, is where you have government that's concerned about this, where you have a private sector, both in the tech community and real estate community, concerned about it, and where you have some philanthropies, some local foundations that will help make social investments. That's where you see this kind of thing really taking off, whether that's Pittsburgh with Carnegie Mellon and the University of Pittsburgh and the Heinz and Mellon Endowments, and my friend, the mayor, Bill Peduta, whether that's Tulsa now with Tulsa Remote and the George Kaiser Family Foundation, whether that's Bentonville, Arkansas, where where there's a group in northwest Arkansas, plus the Walton family, and I could go chapter and verse, whether that's Indianapolis or even my hometown of Newark, New Jersey, where Prudential and local government and local real estate interests have worked together. So there is this new way of thinking about public-private philanthropic partnership that I think opens up a new door. It's not coming from Washington. Washington can provide some leverage. Washington can provide some in incentives. But it's thinking about this in a highly localized set of public-private philanthropic partnerships to deliver it. How do you think uh, institutional investors and, and global institutional investors uh, should think about this kind of impact investing? How does it fit within their portfolio or their, their investment thesis? Yeah, and I, I want to say this in the most humble way and not as an advertisement for what I'm doing. So a good, a good friend of mine from Toronto, Michael Cooper, uh, who runs Dream, and I think Jane Halvin is, is on your board, so I, I came to me this summer and said, Rich, what you're thinking about in this academical way about affordability and inclusivity actually has some bearing on what we do as developers and what investors do. And he encouraged me to work with him and others on an impact framework. And, and I would have never seen this in myself. Like, I think it took someone from your industry who kind of saw, has a good sense of the future and a good intuition. And so he said, why don't you work with us on an impact framework? So I spent the last couple of months doing that. And it was eye-opening for me, folks. And, and here you have kind of the naive professor, 
you know, sitting in the classroom thinking about inclusivity, eye opener into your world and the way in which capital can be deployed for impact. And, and what we thought about doing, and I'm just being as a case study, is orienting a real estate fund around the UN goal, the, the Sustainable Development Goal 11. I get the words wrong, the order, but it's, it's something like building safer, more inclusive, more resilient, more sustainable cities. And building an impact framework with a great group of professionals to do that, to measure that. What I think that's done for me is it, it's actually made me a better professor. Like I can actually teach my MBA students what impact is and how they can go into real estate and make a difference. But I think for the industry, it, it kind of says we now have a way to focus on doing well by doing good. And what I've seen, you know, talking to people now that my eyes have been opened that, yeah, this is a big trend. And it's a trend that I think lots of people can get on and make a big difference. And I don't think it's going away, right? I think the world is shifting now to say we can use the capital markets to achieve some social goods. So yeah, I think this whole focus on using impact investment to engage the real estate and financial communities to create better communities. Yeah, I think it's a big shift and a good shift because government can't do this on its own. It It's failed. I mean, I hate to say it, but over the past 20 or 30 years, it's failed to do it. Well, it, it's interesting because in this space, for at least 10 years, I've been hearing from institutional investors uh, who are concerned about all the issues that have kind of risen to the front um, over the last year. Uh, there seems to be that accelerant, but also that kind of energized kind of feeling around, hey, let's actually do it now. Let's stop talking about it. Let's do something about it. Um, and at least historically, when institutional investors have worked on things like this, think sustainability, they discovered, hey, actually, this makes sense, not just from the standpoint of a social good, but from the standpoint of uh, serving the needs of the pensioners, the investors um, in their funds uh, to be able to do something that makes sense uh, all the way around. Um, I, I, I hate to... Uh, What's that terrible phrase um, about uh, a win-win scenario? But that's yeah. kind of where it goes uh, in terms of that. And I think the movement is upon us because the society is demanding it. You know, it's not surprising to me that Nuveen has been at the forefront of this because they hold my pension fund, right? TIAA-CREF, right? And what are professors? All pro Not all professors, but like 90% of professors are far left of center. They, they went into that profession. They sacrificed income they could have made in the private sector because they care about the world, you know? And, and so I think it's not surprising to me that there are many more people out there. And, you know, one of the things that I think is, is interesting from the real estate community, you know, and there's a brilliant guy at Stanford called Jonathan Rodden, who's written a lot on cities, wrote a book called Why Cities Lose. It's actually not a great title. I interviewed him for City Lab. But basically his thesis is that if you look at these so-called superstar cities, New York, San Francisco, London, Boston, Washington. I could go down the list. They're the ones that pop into my head. They are packed with these knowledge workers and creative class people who skew left of center. Um, these are people who are very concerned about poverty and inclusivity, very concerned about segregation and inequity, very concerned about women's rights and gay rights. That's just the way this creative class is made up. If you look at the places that voted most for Obama or Biden, they're San Jose, they're San Francisco, they're New York City, they're Boston, they're Washington, D.C. So the point of view is these superstar cities, which have been very attractive for real estate investment, have a progressive mindset. That's the point I'm making. So for real estate firms to operate there in a way that they're perceived as good citizens or big tech companies to operate there, 
they have to reflect those values to some degree. They can't just look like bad guys. And so I think it's incumbent upon the real estate community and the tech community to understand that. And one thing that really worries me is when I see members of the real estate community spouting off and saying things like, oh, the problem with San Francisco is it's really poorly governed and the people don't get it. Oh, the problem with New York is they don't get it and they're really poorly governed and they don't get us. That's because there's a constituency for that. It's not not because, because there's a large political constituency that's saying, we don't know how to fix this, so stop what you're doing. So I, I you know, the last opinion editorial I wrote about Amazon HQ2 was a plea to New York City and Amazon to come together and develop a way forward that was inclusive and sustainable and took neighborhood and business interest to heart and made, back to your bad word, a win-win. And they failed to do that. They just went at loggerheads. So look, I think the real estate community is advantaged. The financial community is advantaged. The capital is held by who holds the capital. And I think it, it, it's worth it for us to come to the table, for the real estate and financial community to come to the table and say, we want to work with you to achieve these goals rather than just stop and fix yourself and be more like us. Well, we have a tendency when we say the words, we want to work with you. And by we, I mean everyone, not just real estate, uh, to say, I want you to work with me. Um, but what is really being called for, it sounds like, especially from what you're saying and from what I've been observing so far, is that we actually have to sh share ownership, whether that's actual financial ownership or some sort of sense of ownership for every part of our city as we develop. And I think we're getting there. I, 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 I've never been, I mean, I'm worried. I'm worried about the tremendous inequity in our society, which keeps me up at night is the fact that a 0.001% has made most of the gains um, in this COVID and post-COVID world. And then, you know, the top 20 or 30% of professional knowledge workers have gotten the rest. And the bottom half or 60% of society sinks deeper. But I do think we're at this reckoning point. I, you, you can just sense it. We're at a reckoning point where something has to be done yeah. differently. And, you know, when David Brooks, you know, who's a lifelong Republican, I know David, a conservative, writes in the New York Times that Joe Biden is a transformational president. You know, I've read that essay now 14 times. I don't think he means that Joe Biden is a transformational president. I think he means that Joe Biden is occupying the office of the presidency at a time that is transformational for America and the world. And, and that his occupancy of that presidency, if it's to be successful, has to go along with a broader business, social, cultural, and economic transformation. And look, you know, I mean, this is really interesting for me to say. My dad had a seventh grade education, you know, took up work in a factory at age 13, an eyeglass factory in Newark. He went and, you know, enlisted in the U.S. Army the day Pearl Harbor was attacked. And, you know, he told me they gave me a freaking broomstick and a doughboy helmet. We had no guns. Society had gotten awfully complacent. It was highly unequal in the 1920s, the roaring 20s. We didn't have our, our economic mobilization. Our military wasn't ready. We were isolated. Our country didn't want to engage the world. Here I was a seventh education. He said, Rich, by the time I got to England, before we deployed to Normandy, you could see ship after ship, convoy after convoy coming with armaments and food and every supply we needed. He said, never. And, and, he, and he also said, this is an amazing story. When he left America, he had a low wage job in a factory which took nine people, grandma, grandpa and his six siblings and himself to make a family wage. When he came back from the war, he came back to a new America in the same factory, Gunner 
he made enough money to buy himself a car, to find my mom and to get married, to buy himself a home, a suburban home, have two kids and to put them through Catholic school and college. He said, we made these jobs. He said this. He said, we made these jobs better, Rich. They were crappy jobs. We made them better. He said, never underestimate the ability of America to turn on a dime. And, and you know, the capstone of the story, my dad's long deceased. But when I get, went to get my first vaccination shot um, at a little community center in Miami Beach where we spend the winter, when I walked into that community center, the Unidad Community Center, and I saw the healthcare workers and the EMTs and the Latino and the Hispanic and the Haitian and the Jewish and the white and the African-American volunteers, Gunnar, I started bawling my eyes. I started crying. And, and I thought back to my father and what he said about how America can turn on a dime. I saw everything he said in my own life. And the tears just poured down my cheeks. How, how did we do this? How did we rescue our society from this damn virus? If we can do that, we can do this. That's a beautiful thought and one that I will hold with me for a long time. So thank you. Yeah. And it, it just, you know, you know, here's a seventh grade educated guy, Italian American. My grandparents left Italy for a better way of life. He saw it and I never saw it. I heard his word. You know, they were there. They were in my memory bank. But that minute they came rushing back and all the tragedy he had seen, the Great Depression, Childhood diseases that killed his peers. He almost died of scarlet fever. My mom almost died of diphtheria. The invention of penicillin, the invention of modern vaccines, Jonas Salk and the polio vaccine, the rebuilding of our country. Look, we've done it before. We can do it again. And we're better now. We have a financial system, a real estate system. So I'm very hopeful. I, I, there's a long way to go. And we've all got to gird ourselves for this transformation. But I do think we're at a big turning point. And I think our community, the real, what I've learned in the past year is that it's easier for some people to point at the real estate and financial community as the enemy. Some people who do what I do, I think it's better if we all begin to act together and with, with a big burden on the real estate and financial investment community to help build better, more inclusive, safer, more resilient cities. And, and I, think, I think we can do it. It might take a while, but we, it might take another decade or two, but I think we can. Yeah, we can do it. We're slow, but we can do it. So those are powerful thoughts to uh, remember and to inspire us going forward. Uh, we've run out of time. So uh, thank you, Richard, for joining me on the AFIRE podcast. Oh, thank you. Let's stay in touch, Gunnar. It's really great getting to know you better. You've been listening to the AFIRE podcast. Remember to subscribe on your favorite podcasting platform, including Apple, Google, Spotify, and more. AFIRE is not engaged in providing tax, accounting, or legal advice to this podcast. No content included here is to be construed as a recommendation to buy or sell any asset. Some information, including the AFIRE podcast, may have been obtained from third-party sources considered to be reliable. AFIRE is not responsible for guaranteeing the accuracy of third-party information. The opinions expressed in the AFIRE podcast are those of its respective contributors and do not necessarily reflect those of AFIRE. To learn more about the AFIRE podcast, including underwriting guest opportunities, visit afire.org slash podcast.